two things, two ordinances that Jesus told us to do on an ongoing basis. And uh, he told us there's the great commandment, love the Lord your God, love one another. Then he gave us a great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And, and then he gave us a couple of ordinances. Some people call them sacraments. We do not call them sacraments, at least from the pulpit, because sacraments, for many people, believe that the sacraments indicate something that secures salvation for you. These ordinances do not secure salvation. These ordinances express the fact that you have been saved. They express the fullness of your salvation. They're symbolic of what our salvation has done for us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, the gift that God gives to us. And so I titled the message, Jesus Said, and he said two things I want to point out today. Jesus said we should be baptized in water. Jesus said we should be baptized in water. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First time we read about baptism in the Bible that I'm aware of is when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, came. Remember, he was the guy who um, dressed funny, and he, and he ate weird food. I don't know, maybe honey dipped locust is pretty good. I'm not going to try that, maybe... I mean, honey's good for you, and locusts must be protein. So, uh, but his ministry was not in downtown. It was out on the outskirts of society. But yet the crowds came by the hundreds to hear him preach that you need to repent. And to show that you've repented, you need to come in and let me baptize you in water. And many people were baptized by the baptism of John, baptized in water. Jesus said we should be baptized. I believe that that baptism that John began was anticipation of the salvation that was going to come when the Messiah came. I believe we should be baptized in water because we follow Jesus' example of being baptized in water. Remember in Mark 1, 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. A dirty river. Remember the story of Naaman? Why would I wash myself in that dirty river? There's clean water back in our town. But uh, Jesus came and he said, John needed to baptize me. Matthew says, that John said to Jesus, well, this is backwards. I, you need to baptize me, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, that righteousness might be fulfilled. You need to baptize me. And the scripture says, when Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And there was a voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I have a, an important question. Did Jesus need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin? Some of you are pretty quick to answer. Jesus was sinless. If he was not sinless, then the sacrifice was useless. Jesus did not get baptized to wash away his sins. He got baptized to give to us an example of what we are to do. Our sins are washed away, how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been in 1 John, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus was baptized to give us an example to follow because it had to do with his 
death and resurrection. Water baptism demonstrates that I'm a believer. It demonstrates that I'm a believer. In the book of Acts chapter 2, in the book of Acts chapter 10, the book of chapter 18, the book of Acts chapter 22, we read where the apostles instructed the people, you need to repent and be baptized in water and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You need to be baptized because the baptism demonstrates what has happened in my heart, in my soul. When Vicki and I stood in front of the preacher, two witnesses, and a bunch of people, we exchanged rings. The rings are a sign or symbol of the vows that we made to each other. When I perform a wedding ceremony, Solomon's a wedding, I say to the couple, you are to wear these rings and may they be a constant reminder of the promises that you have made to each other today. The ring doesn't make me married. What makes me married is the giving of my heart and the signing of the contract. It's what happened inside. This is a symbol of what happened. And so when we're baptized in water, it's a symbol of what I have done in my heart. I have identified with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So what's the meaning of water baptism? Two things. It illustrates Christ's burial and resurrection. His burial and his resurrection. I've got three verses to read, but I'll give you a moment to write resurrection. It's a longer word. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 said this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins, according with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scripture. Jesus came... Jesus died, Jesus rose, he ascended to heaven, and he's coming back again. Romans 6, 4 said, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were buried with him, how? In baptism. When we go out into the water, we are saying, I identify with Jesus. He died in my place. I went into the grave spiritually with him. Colossians 2.12 says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You have been buried with him in baptism. Number two, baptism illustrates my new life as a Christian. My new life as a Christian. John 1.12 To as many, or but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I have a new life. I'm a new person. My past is under the blood of Jesus Christ. I am now a child of God. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. Skipping down to verse 11, it says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That Romans 6 is talking about this baptism into Christ. We need to come to this conclusion when I've come out of that water. My declaration, 
of what has happened to me spiritually is my old man died with Christ and he may be a new person, a son of God. And now I live this new life and I'm leaving that old life back there in the pit. I'm leaving it in the grave. It no longer has control over me unless I let it. That's why he said, you need to consider yourselves. Consider yourselves. And that's a mathematical term in in, in the Greek language. You need to come to this conclusion. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. I now live for him. June 27, 1987, my life was changed forever. A day that I do not forget, and I better not forget, because it's the day I got married. Water baptism is similar in the fact that it marks a moment in time when I have declared publicly, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means your heart's desire for the rest of your life is I've committed myself to my Lord, and now I'm part of the bride of Christ. I'm part of the body of Christ. I have become a child of God, and by His grace, I'm going to live by one, or like one. We baptize by full immersion, because that's the way they did in the New Testament. That's the way Jesus was baptized. And it is the best way to symbolize death and resurrection, to be fully immersed. Who should be baptized? Every believer. When? As soon as you can. Should I be baptized more than once? It won't hurt. I know that my dad and Steve and Dorothy, when they went to the Holy Land, they didn't go together, by the way, but they were all baptized in the Jordan River just to be where Jesus was and to experience what Jesus experienced. They were baptized again, and and there in the Jordan River made their declaration, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I know folks who have come to me and say, I was baptized when I was younger, and I did not have a clue what I was doing. And I've come to understand that I needed Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, so baptize me again, please. And we're happy to do that. I know folks who walked away from the Lord in absolute rebellion. They said, I'm done. I don't want to do it this way. I want to do it my way. And like the prodigal son, there came a moment when they came to their senses. And they came home and said, you know what? I need to declare my faith in Jesus Christ publicly again and to be baptized in water. Can I get to heaven if I'm not baptized in water? That's above my pay grade. Aren't you glad I'm not God? However, if my reason for not being baptized is I don't want anybody to know that I'm a believer, There is a scripture that is kind of, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before the Father. So part of being water baptism is the Lord helping you to grow in your commitment to him and your spiritual growth. Before we conclude today, I think we have five people who are going to come and be baptized in water, declaring before God and everyone, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and God raised me from the dead. And I believe now he lives in my heart. I hope you'll hang around and celebrate with us, these five individuals. Number two, Jesus said we should eat the bread and drink the cup. We should eat the bread and drink the cup. Going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in the remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We call it communion. You ever wondered why we call it communion? I think we call it communion because of what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 in the King James Bible, where it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Newer translations use the word participation, communion, often referred to as holy communion. In some denominations, it's called the Eucharist. Eucharist means the giving of thanks. Jesus is the one who changed a feast that the Jews were supposed to have been keeping every year for over a thousand years. The Passover feast. So you see, the, the night that Jesus was betrayed, we just read, that's the night before Good Friday, before the crucifixion. He gathered with his disciples and he said, I've longed to eat this Passover with you. Passover was commemorating God's deliverance of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. You can read about all of that in the first part of Exodus. And you come to the 10th plague, the final plague, in chapters 11 and 12. The plague that God placed there that finally sets the stage for Pharaoh to say, take your people and go. God told Moses, tell the people of each household on the 10th day of the month, they're to take a one-year-old lamb, the most perfect lamb that they have, or the most perfect kid out of the goats that they have. Take it, and it, it, it kind of infers that they were to take it into their house. And for the next five days, they're to take care of this animal. And then on the 14th day of the month, they were to take that animal, and they were to slaughter it. They were to kill it. And take the blood as they spilled out of this animal, and take a hyssop branch and paint the doorpost and over top of the door. Because God said at midnight, the angel of death is going to pass through the land of Egypt and Goshen. And everywhere there's blood on the door, the angel will pass over. But where there's no blood, the firstborn inside will die. And if you read this story... Every home in Egypt and every barn in Egypt, the firstborn of the children, the firstborn of the cattle, died. Every home, because there was no blood. But there was not any of the Israelites who died because they put the blood of the lamb on the door. And the first Passover was about salvation by the blood of a lamb about the blood of a lamb. And, and God told them, I want you to keep this as a a feast every year. For seven days, you don't have any leavened bread in the house, and you're to partake of this meal, and you're to remember what happened. Well, we know that from the time of Abel in the book of Genesis, I talked about it last week, the week before, I don't know, weeks run together, about uh, where... Abel offered a blood sacrifice. We know that Abraham offered blood sacrifices. Isaac and Japheth, they all offered blood sacrifices because that was God and instructed them to do. But when you get to Moses and the Exodus, God gave them some very specific plans about how to offer a blood sacrifice for sin, when to offer it, where to offer it. If you sin... One of the chapters and one of those offerings, it says, if you unintentionally broke one of God's laws, what you were to do is you were to take your sacrifice, your lamb, your bull, your goat, you were to take it to the tabernacle, the altar in front of the tabernacle, and you are to take it to the priest, and you were to tell him, I've come here to repent. And they would lay that, you were, you were to take that sacrifice. You were to lay your hand upon its head. He says, lay your hand upon his head, but if you read the subtext, you are to grab a hold of him and pull his head back, and you are to take a knife and slit its throat, cut the juggler, capture the blood. The priest would take some of that blood and put it on the, the horns of the altar, the post that stuck up, and then he would take it and pour it around the altar. 
It was all about... When you brought your offering to church in those days, it was a whole lot different than dropping your offering in that box back there or putting it online through the app. It was a bloody ordeal. A bloody ordeal. It was during this Passover meal when they had come to you know, by the time that Jesus was come, that the, the Jews had created quite a liturgy. Now it's called the Seder service. Quite a liturgy of, of telling the story again about the Exodus. And there was, I think, three, maybe four cups of wine that they were supposed to drink. And there was several pieces of unleavened bread that they were supposed to eat. And one of them was hidden and a child was supposed to go find it. And there's all kinds of liturgy that went with it. Jesus, on that night, as they're taking the Passover, at some point, at, at, at one of those, he takes one of those cups, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. He took the cup and he said, all of you, you share this. He passed it around. Then he took the bread and said, this, this bread is my body, broken for you, broken in your behalf. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. Then he took another cup. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins, and they drank from that cup. Jesus was telling them in that Passover feast that went back to Moses' day, it's a new day. It's a new covenant. A new covenant. Jesus used those words, a new covenant, sealed by his blood. What he was telling, he'd been telling them for several months now, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to offer myself as the Lamb of God. It was going to be a bloody mess. Remember John the Baptist introduced him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. I am going to become the sacrifice that you might have forgiveness. This will be the final sacrifice. No more blood of goats, no more lambs. No more birds offered on the altar. Once and for all, I am going to be making the atonement for sin. The demand of the law will be met, paid in full. It's not by coincidence that since AD 70, there has not been an altar in Jerusalem or a temple to offer sacrifices at because it's unnecessary. Because Jesus once and for all, paid the price. He said, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Remember the cross. Remember the price. Remember that it was done for you so that your sins can be forgiven. Now there's healing for you, not on the basis of who you are or what you've done, but solely on the basis of my blood being shed for you, solely on the fact that I died for your sins. You know, don't you, the only way to become a Christian is to identify with that blood, the crucifixion. By saying, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins, and I accept that death in my, my behalf. I ask you to forgive me of my sins based on what you did. Communion is about salvation by the blood of the Lamb. Not a Lamb, but the Lamb. The last lamb, the lamb of God. We'll come back to that in a few moments. I want to talk a little bit about the context of Paul giving these instructions regarding communion, or as he calls it in this chapter, the Lord's Supper. If you go back to verse 17 and read through 22 of this 11th chapter, you will hear Paul reprimand the church at Corinth for the way they treat one another in the name of sharing the Lord's Supper. 
Now, we don't know exactly how they went about doing communion. I've read that there's five different suggested scenarios. This week I read it, five different ones on how they did this Lord's Supper meal. Most of them include the fact that they were actually sharing a meal similar to the Passover, that they, the Passover was always a meal. And it appears that it turned into some kind of potluck where everybody would bring something, and somewhere during this potluck, they would commemorate the body of Jesus and drink a cup of wine. And, but as you read what Paul is writing, he said, I can't commend you for your, they call them love feasts. And he said, I can't commend you for your love feast at all because, this is my paraphrase, they're not love feasts at all. He said, your rich folks come and you eat until you're way full and you've drank too many cups of wine and now you can't drive home <laughs> while the poor people have nothing. What you have done is you have brought division in the church you humiliated part of the church. You've despised, you despise the church. He said, I'm not going to commend you for what you're doing. This is what I received from the Lord. That's what we read in verse 23 and on. He said, listen to what Jesus said and listen and learn something. Subtext of verse 23, something like, Jesus took the ingredients of a common meal on that day and turned it into a meaningful spiritual experience for believers. However, the value of the communion experience depends on the condition of the hearts of those who participate. It depends on the hearts of those who participate. The problem in Corinth, their heart was not right. They had taken something beautiful and turned it into something destructive and divisive. Just the opposite of what Jesus intended for it to be. From what Paul writes in this 11th chapter, it is a serious thing to come to the communion table with an unprepared heart. It is a serious thing to come to the communion table with an unprepared heart. We read in verse 24, and he given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as drink it in remembrance of me. Communion is primarily an act of remembrance. It is primarily an act of remembrance. In my reading this week, I came across a couple of different commentators who made some observations about remembrance. And they sounded so familiar, and I don't know which one copied the other, if the Lord just dropped it both of their heart, and they never met each other, I don't know. So I don't know who to give the credit to. So, but I want to point out some suggestions that I, that I read. We should look back. We should look back. As we partake of the communion, we should look back. Jesus said, remember my body, remember the blood, remember my death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Think about what he did. Communion is a proclamation of the gospel. Communion is a proclamation of the gospel. You proclaim the Lord's death. In giving thanks for the body and the blood, we remember the price Jesus paid for us to be forgiven, the price he paid for us to be adopted to his family. We remember what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All my sins were laid upon Jesus all your sins were laid upon Jesus when he died. He paid for them. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Now, when I say look back and remember, it's not the same as going to a museum and looking back in history and reading all those little things and looking at all the stuff that behind glass. When we look back, we participate in the action of looking back in the spirit realm. I, re- I identify Jesus, when your body was broken, my body was broken. When your blood was shed, my blood was shed because you did it for me. And today I have intimate fellowship with you because of what you did. Now you live with me. You walk with me. You talk with me. You tell me that I'm your own. That's why we call it communion, participation. Number two, we should look ahead. We should look ahead. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. He comes. He comes. When Jesus took that first cup and said this is a new covenant, he said, I'm I'm not going to drink of this wine again until the kingdom comes, the kingdom of God. I'm not going to eat of this bread until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. It was from those words that Paul writes that we proclaim his death until he comes again. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life because they have by faith put their faith in Jesus Christ, in the grace of Jesus Christ. Number three, we should look within. We should look within. Whoever eats, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In case you didn't notice, this is a very strong warning. He said there's an unworthy way to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, when I was a kid, and they passed around, they communion tray or it was sitting on the communion table whatever we had when I was a kid there were some older folks who told us children you better not touch that because you touch it and do it in an unworthy manner and the inference was is you might be dead you're going to get sick it's not the way for or the grape juice that's going to hurt you. It's just a wafer and just grape juice. Or if you happen to go to one of those churches where you get the real stuff, it's just wine. It's our attitude toward an understanding of the body of Christ associated with communion that can bring judgment on us. It's my attitude and my understanding of the body of Christ associated with communion that can bring judgments on us. For years I heard it preached that many of you are sick because you don't understand that Jesus took the stripes for your healing. If you understood that, you would be healed. And while it's true, the Bible says by His stripes we are healed. In this context... When he's speaking of the body of Christ, he's not speaking about Jesus' physical body. The body of the Lord in this context is the church. And I don't mean the building, I mean the people. The church. The church. What's the mantra for real estate? Three words. Location, location, location. For me, the mantra for properly dividing the word of truth is context, context, context. 
in this context. In verse 17 of this 11th chapter, he begins his fatherly reprimand for the way they conduct their so-called love feast. He chastises them because he hears there are divisions, there are factions, there are the haves and the have-nots, and the haves are treating the have-nots not very well at all. They're not treating them with the love of Jesus. When you go home today and you contemplate this message and you open your Bible and you read on in the 12th chapter, you'll read there where, by the way, remember when Paul wrote this letter, it was not in chapters and verses, it was just a letter. There might have been paragraphs. But he just kept on writing. Chapter 12 is all about us together being the body of Christ. To eat the communion in an unworthy manner, as I understand it, would be to have the thinking of verse 21 in chapter 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, if you read that context, it says we are all members of the body of Christ in particular. We all have our own position. People who tell me I don't need the church to go to heaven I don't think they're properly discerning the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, where he speaks to the church in Rome about the body having many members. In verse 3 he said, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That was going on in Corinth. The rich folks would eat before the poor folks even got to the table because they were privileged. Do not think more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner would be to partake of the communion with unforgiveness in your heart towards someone in the church. Ephesians 4.32 said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I have to forgive? Yes. Matthew chapter 6. You know where Jesus said, Pray in this manner, our Father in heaven, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, and all of that. And you know what the next verse says? If you do not forgive your brother, Father in heaven cannot forgive you. An unworthy manner. Anyone who drinks and without discerning the body needs to drink judgment. That is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. These words are not to be taken lightly. God has put some principles into motion, sowing and reaping, consequences that come as a result of our actions and our choices. Sometimes, not all the time, but according to what the Lord delivered to Paul by the divine brother, there are times we are spiritually weak, physically ill, and even dead, because we did not properly treat the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ with the love of Jesus, with the grace that's been given to us, the forgiveness that God gives to us. Now, what I did not say is that if you're sick, it's because you... I did not say that, okay? This is just some sicknesses. There's other sicknesses that are for the glory of God. Jesus, why was this man born blind? Did his parents sin or did he sin? Neither one. It was for the glory of God. But if you have a wrong attitude towards the body of Christ, 
It's like trying to defy the law of gravity. There is natural consequences that God put into place. We've been talking about it over and over in 1 John. If I say I love God and I don't love my brother, I'm lying to myself, I'm lying to God, and I'm lying about everybody, to everybody. So we look within. I do remember when I was growing up, quite often on Communion Sunday, the hymn of the day would be, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. So when we come to the table, we need to look within. Lord, if there be anything in my heart against somebody that shouldn't be there, I want it to be revealed to me and I want to repent of it and I want to take care of it. Number four, we should look around. We should look around. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when we come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. When we look around to take communion, we are to... When we take communion together, we are to look around not to criticize one another, not to find fault with one another, but to discern the fact that we are part of each other. We belong to each other. We together form the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit directed Paul to write that we are the body of Christ is so that you and I would know this. I need you, and you need me. I need you, and you need me. I will not be all that I was intended to be if I'm not connected to you and vice versa. The body of Christ will not be all that it was intended to be if you're not connected. If we're not doing what God called us and created us to do, Hebrews chapter 10, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more as you see the day approaching. How many believe it's Jesus is coming soon? How many hope he comes soon? So we're supposed to be gathering together, encouraging one another more now than we've ever encouraged one another. And everybody said, Amen. Aren't you glad you're in church today? There is unity and equality at the communion table. There is unity and equality at the communion table. When we pick up the piece of bread, we're reminded what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's one loaf, one body. And the fact is we all came into this body by the very same grace, grace alone. We had a story about the Duke of Wellington years ago remaining to take communion at his parish church. And a very old man went up to the opposite aisle and reaching the communion table, knelt down close to the Duke. And immediately there was a tension and a commotion that interrupted the silence of the church. Someone came and touched the old man, the poor man on the shoulder, and whispered him, move farther away or to rise and wait until the Duke had received his bread and wine. But the eagle eye and the quick ear of the great leader caught the meaning of that touch and the whisper of the old man. He reached out and clasped the old man's hand and prevented him from rising. And in reverent but distinct undertones, the duke said, Do not move. We are equal here. We are equal here. Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand that. And God wanted you and I to understand it, so he had it put in the Word. There's reconciliation at the communion table. There's reconciliation at the communion table. We when we partake of the communion table, we're reminded that Jesus broke down every partition of barrier between male and female, slave and, and free, and black and white, and yellow and green, and whatever. 
There's reconciliation. We are all members of one body. We're all members of one family, the family of God. At the communion table, we remember that we accept whoever Jesus accepts. We accept whoever Jesus accepts. It's amazing how easy it is to forget that I'm in the body of Christ, the family of God, because of His grace. It's grace and grace alone. So who am I to judge who is acceptable and who is not acceptable? Who am I to look down on someone who is not as affluent as us or the opposite side of the coin? Who am I to judge someone who has a lot more money than I have? A lot more prestige than I have? Does Jesus love them? Did Jesus die for them? Does Jesus accept them? To rightly discern the Lord's body, I believe that means, letter E, we have a passion to be together with the body. We have a passion to be together with the body. Fact of the matter is, uh, a whole lot of Christians, I believe, are missing the blessing of the Lord in their lives and hindering the work of the church in general because they have come to the erroneous conclusion that going to church is all about the consumer. Do I like the music? Do I like the preaching? Do my children like their classes? Does the worship experience tickle my fancy? Who's supposed to be tickled by worship anyway? If the Father's not tickled by it, it doesn't mean anything. The communion reminds me as part of the body of Christ, I have spiritual gifts that God has given to me for the building up of this body. You have spiritual gifts God gave you for the building up the body of Christ. Letter F. We are stronger together than we are separately. We are stronger together than we are separately. In the battle against the powers of hell, the battle against the culture in which we're surrounded, more than ever, we need to stand united in Christ. There is spiritual health when I bring myself into a place of fellowship and accountability with brothers and sisters in Christ. There is life that flows through the body of Christ. Resurrection life power. Creative power in the body of Christ. How important is the body of Christ? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. I trust that you grabbed a communion emblem when you came in today. Anybody need one? I see that hand. Those are being baptized. If you'd like to go in the back and I'll meet you there in a moment. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. If you guys are going to be baptized, you just want to meet me in the back room there in a minute. Okay. Everybody have emblems? Open the small end first. No, he's not going to. He's not. Huh? Is he? We read earlier that Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And I could preach another hour about that. I told my wife I was going to, but she said, I better not. <laughs> so, Father, as we hold this emblem, we realize 
we realize that there is, this is simply, simply a symbol of one of the most powerful things that ever took place in the history of mankind. When God became flesh, when God became flesh and dwelt among us for the express purpose of dying in our place, the express purpose of being broken, that we might be made whole. Stripes upon your back purchased healing for our spirit, our mind, and our body. And Lord, as we partake of this emblem today, we thank you for that healing power. We thank you for that wholeness. We thank you that you are broken, that we might be united together as brothers and sisters. Thank you for that wholeness that is ours today in Jesus. Shall we eat? In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins for many. So Lord, as we hold the cup, so thankful today for what it represents. As a songwriter said, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you that the promise of the word is that if we walk in the light as you're in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that our past has been washed away, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when we stand before you, could be today, tomorrow, next week, but we will all stand before you. And on that day when we stand before you and open up the book and see our name, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and your righteousness, there is nothing on our account. I thank you for that today. I thank you for that forgiveness. And Lord, as we hold the cup, we're reminded that we're to remember the future. You're coming again. You're coming again. Our hope. There's going to be a great resurrection day. We'll be reunited with those who've gone before us. Thank you, Jesus, for that hope. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection power. Thank you, Lord, because you live, we live, now and forevermore. Lord, help us to be people who proclaim the gospel in the way that we live, the way that we treat one another, the way we love one another, because that's how the world will know that we are Christians is by the fact we love each other. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us. We give you praise and honor and glory as we drink this cup in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to baptize five. The worship team's going to come. If you want to change your position and stand, do a little dancing while they sing, I'm going to go to the back room. No, no. You got it. You got it.